Welcome back to the Mirdar Podcast. I'm Anaya Keenan. Shortly after November 3rd, we released a poll on social media asking students what their most common points of confusion were after election night. From our survey results, the most popular answer was the Electoral College, and with good reason. The system has a long and complicated history that can make it hard to understand in the present day. On today's episode, we explore the past, present, and future of the Electoral College in order to understand its original purpose and how it affects voting and polarization today. In order to get a proper understanding of the system we use to select our leaders, I went back to its origins in the year 1787 to the Constitutional Convention held in Philadelphia. As delegates convened at the Philadelphia State House, the issue of how our country should select its executive leader weighed heavy on their minds. While debating this issue, two sides formed, one in favor of a president selected by Congress, and another pushing for a democratic popular vote. What we know now is the Electoral College emerged as a compromise between the two sides. Under the compromise, every four years, a temporary group of delegates would be selected equal to the number of members of Congress. These delegates would vote and ultimately determine the winner of presidential elections. A sticking point arose when deciding how many electoral votes should be awarded per state. Originally, votes were to be partitioned proportional to state population. But southern states, wary of losing their political voice to population-dense northern cities, advocated that enslaved peoples should count as part of state populations. North, adverse to the system of slavery, protested. What followed was the three-fifths compromise, in which enslaved peoples were counted as three-fifths of a person in the calculations of state populations, securing the South marginally more electoral college votes than the North. The Three-Fifths Compromise was later repealed with the passage of the 14th Amendment in 1868, but the system of the Electoral College stayed on as a means of balancing power between urban and rural voters. After reviewing the history of the Electoral College, I wanted to talk to someone with more expertise about the modern purpose of the system. I turned to Jackson Avery, Miramani APUS history and world history teacher and history enthusiast. We talked about the history of the Electoral College, its modern purpose, and the effects of polarization on voters. Here's our conversation. The first question I wanted to ask you is about how the purpose or the influence of the Electoral College has changed over time versus its purpose when it was first created to how it affects our electoral politics now. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, no, I was just going to say specifically how the 14th Amendment may have changed that because it got rid of the three-fifths compromise, which initially influenced vote counts. So this is a really interesting question. I'll, I'll take the first part first, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go to the 14th Amendment. Um, what we look at with the Electoral College specifically is that when we're setting up in seven, let's in 1789, as, as the founders of this country are writing the Constitution and trying to create a Republican form of government, um, you know, if they were to have the president elected in the Senate, we have to remember that the Electoral College was also designed to have the senators be elected as well. Yeah. Um, if they were to be elected by the popular vote. Um, the South would never, they would never win an election, right? Because they didn't have eligible, they didn't have the number of eligible voters. 
And so as they're writing this constitution, one of the main questions that had to be asked was, well, how do we keep this union together? And so the electoral college was a way to balance the power of a state like New York, which had a much larger um, voting po- voting eligible population than a place like Georgia um, or, or South Carolina or something like that, which those southern states maybe had a larger population, but most of that population was made up of enslaved African people who had absolutely no political rights. And so the Electoral College was made in order to kind of strike that balance. And, and, and kind of to your point as well, they also had into that system the three-fifths compromise so that southern representation in Congress would also – represent the population of those states without giving the population of those states representation, right? And so what we see is this aristocratic class basically coming to the negotiating table of our democracy and and dictating the terms a little bit um, because there was so much interest in just keeping this country together. Um, And so – In 1789, this wasn't necessarily – in terms of who was voting, right, this – in terms of who was actually eligible to vote, the the people who were elected were relatively representative of the people that were voting. Um, But as the democracy kind of expands, as we get more people who are eligible to vote, specifically your very good example of the 14th Amendment, we really start to see that that this system is turned on its head. Um, now, what's really interesting about the Fourth Amendment and kind of how it expands democracy is that we see about a decade of black legislatures in the South. We actually see black people going to the polls, voting for representatives, and, and black members of Congress. Um, but after that 10-year period in Reconstruction, what we see is that Black codes and Jim Crow laws are put into place specifically in order to prevent those populations from voting. And so we see this kind of glorious potential of the American democracy, right, where we have a multicultural, multi-ethnic democracy where we actually take into account multiple viewpoints. But that's quickly taken away because – the North was essentially, in order to strike a deal, um, pulled its troops out of the South in order and, and allowed for the South to implement Jim Crow laws. Um, and so the democracy then became exactly what kind of we see today, where it's not representative of the people actually living in all of these different states. Um, and so – Largely what we see with the Electoral College is that this was a system made in 1789 in order to not take into account the actual popular you know, sentiment of who they wanted to be the representative, but rather who the leaders of these states wanted to be the president, right? It was a compromise. It wasn't meant to be – our leader was never meant to be popularly elected, and so – and I think I might be skipping a little bit ahead here, but that tends to kind of ring pretty hollow for us now, right? Mm-hmm. As we are kind of championing, like, you know, one person, one vote. Um, yeah. It, 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 it can kind of leave a bad taste in our mouths. Yeah, that actually does kind of transition into the other thing I wanted to ask you about. I've talked to several 
kids my age, um, a little bit older, voting for the first time in this election. And they've expressed the sentiment that since the Electoral College, as they put it, makes the final call, they didn't feel like their vote mattered. And I tried to explain to them that given trends in how the Electoral College votes in modern politics, it is largely based on the result of the popular vote in individual states. Yes. And especially important if you're living in a swing state. But in your opinion, how would you respond to students feeling like that? So what we see is, especially with the effect the Electoral College has on something like the presidential election, right? We all are aware of the fact that the presidential election is what we all see as kind of like the pinnacle of voting in America, right? That everybody votes in in presidential elections. And when it's not a presidential election, your voting turnout, excuse me, voting turnout just, just plummets, right? Because people aren't as engaged. People aren't as interested, right? So especially if you're living in a place like California, if you feel like your vote isn't necessarily being counted in this one specific election, it can feel like there's no point in voting at all. Um, and the presidential election is actually a really bad example of the reason why you should vote. Um, because what we see in the effect that the Electoral College has, and so I, I'll, I will send you this link as well, and I, but <laughs> in 2016, 94% of all presidential events were held in 12 states. California was visited once, right? There's no need to, right? Why would you, why would you visit California, right? And so what we see as residents of California, I've lived in California my entire life, right, is that the presidential election is not reflective of the actual importance of our democracy. And so we can get into the discussion of should the electoral college be uh, either or, you know, significantly changed or abolished altogether. And I'm happy to have that conversation. But when it comes to the importance of voting, um, I'll give you a really good example of why voting is important. Um, You were pretty young when this happened, but in 2008, the financial system of the United States just, crashed. It was catastrophic. Um, And I remember what happened to Akalani's when that happened, because one of the things that happened was that a lot of teachers got pink slipped. Basically, they were on the hook to be let go because because the schools couldn't afford to keep these teachers on. And so luckily, my mom, who was a, a kind of a parent volunteer at the time, ran what was called Measure A, which was a, it it was, it was a tax essentially. And the tax was specifically targeted towards mail. Um, But all of the funds of that tax would go to keeping these teachers on the payroll. And this was backbreaking work. Getting people to to vote for any tax is hard, right? But in 2008, it, it, it was even more difficult. But the importance of that vote was not just about, hey, let's keep on, you know, the extemporaneous drama teacher or something like it wasn't like we were saving one or two jobs. There were like 30, 40 people that were threatened to be. I doubt all of them would have been fired, but there were a lot of teachers whose jobs were on the line. And so those kinds of votes happen all of the time. Right. We see the propositions. We see these local officials who who really deeply impact our society on the ballot all of the time. And so it's really easy 
to assume <laughs> that that you know we vote in the presidential election. Yeah, you know our vote is eighty four times the national average when you know Wisconsin or sorry, Wyoming's is worth like three hundred percent of their population. <laughs> Um, and it's really easy to get kind of disheveled about that and, and, and kind of scorn the democratic process. But when you go to the ballot box, it's not just to, you know, punch the blue or the red button and say, I am a member of this so-and-so party, right? It's about actually, you know, looking after your community, the people around you. And and it, it's it's something that is when you don't pay attention to it, you, it can very easily be missed. But when you do pay attention to it, it is so incredibly vital um, to our society. And I guess the last point I would make is, would you rather you make that decision or someone you don't know making that decision? Because I'd much rather have a, have a voice in those, the decisions that are being made about who, what, what schools get to be funded and what taxes get to be passed. And I would rather have a say in that rather than letting somebody else who I don't know their qualifications doing that. Um, so I guess it, there's a bit, there's the positive and the negative kind of incentive there. Yeah. And I think your, your answers keep like flowing into each other, but the last thing I was going to ask you about is this is kind of like something we've talked about in a push where we talk about the trend in early American politics Mm -hmm. from like no parties to two party systems and you have the era of mass democracy mm-hmm. and you were just talking about the shift away from the focus on local politics. Like there's yeah. very little focus on it, but it has the most influence on our daily lives. Yeah. And then there's so much focus on the national election. There's a lot of polarization in between political mm-hmm. parties. What, as someone who studies U.S. history, what trends do you see happening in American politics? So we are, and, and it's funny, I actually wrote my master's thesis on this, but I, in terms of politics, we see America become more polarized than at any point since the Civil War. That's a very kind of attractive like Mm -hmm. stat to throw out there that you can kind of just say and be like, wow. Um, But there's a couple of reasons why we see this. The first is that life in America, kind of identity in America was never really before the last, I would say, couple of decades. Um, Your identity was not based on who you voted for in your election, right? You would, you could be a conservative, you could be a liberal, you could be a member of the Republican or Democratic Party, but it wasn't necessarily the first question people asked you was, oh, did they vote for Hillary? Oh, did they vote for Trump, right? Like that, that wasn't, that would be very weird for somebody who was living in the 70s, like that, or the 60s, like that, that's just not how people saw politics. Um, and it was a lot more kind of the, the shift in terms of who people voted for was a little bit more volatile in terms of, you know, people would very often vote for a Republican one election and then vote for a Democrat in the other. That wasn't necessarily all that weird. Um, whereas now what's kind of happened, and there's a couple of good, a couple of really good articles about this is that identity of like political identity and political ideology has been kind of in almost become generational, right? You almost, it's almost who you are to say, I am a Republican or I am a Democrat Um, to the point where if, you know, in a hypothetical, right, if you were a Democrat and I were a Republican and you were to 
asked me a question about my ideology, I would not see that not just as a curiosity, a question, maybe a challenge, but not necessarily done in a, in a kind of malicious way where you're trying mm-hmm. to kind of humiliate me, right? It could have been the most well-meaning question you could ever ask. I would see that as an attack on who I am as a person, right? Because my beliefs are who I am, right? So we, we see people, we see political ideology and kind of party membership become central to a lot of people's identity. And that, that that's not necessarily a thing when you go back a few decades. Um, the other thing, and, and it's a, it's kind of a cop-out answer, but it's absolutely true is social media has driven a, a wedge in our society because what happens is that, I mean, it's very natural when, when, you know, you log on to Twitter for the first time, you log on to Facebook for the first time, what they'll do, what these sites are designed to do is they ask, what do you want to hear about? Right. Mm -hmm. And so let's take the hypothetical of you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican. You're probably going to be looking, you're probably going to be following, you know, Democratic politicians, right. And Occupy Democrats, which is a famous kind of Facebook page. And you're going to you're going to follow all these people where on my end, right, as I'm signing up for all of these things, I'm going to be looking at Ben Shapiro and these conservative websites and doing all these other things. Right. And what happens is that these websites are not designed to inform either you or I. I they're not designed to be like these these centrist news organizations that are just trying to give you the facts. Right. They're designed to engage you. And so what happens is that you see these sites build up information about what sites do you what sites do you click on, right? What 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 kind of grabs your attention the most? And oftentimes those are the the most engaging things on social media are the ones that cause outrage, are the ones that create anger, are the ones who create partisan divide. Yeah. And so if you were to log on to you know our hypothetical Twitter or, or Facebook accounts, right? You would be like, what is happening, right? Especially if you believe you were on the other side of the argument, right? Because you're like, all of this stuff is insane. Oh, like all of this stuff is insane. And then what happens because of that is that misinformation, it's just, it breeds into that. Because now it's not just about getting that information, right? Now you want to hear more information that confirms the bias you already have. It's called confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, you can very easily throw and it's, and we've seen it happen. It happened in 2016. It's, it, we have seen multiple independent reports that say it ha- it's happened in 2020 where either foreign out, you know, foreign countries or, or people who are just trying to cause outrage for outrage's sake will create a fake news article, right? Will create some kind of fake intrigue in order to garner vote or garner clicks and garner attention. Um, and, and while that's in the short term for that person, it can get them a lot of kind of media coverage and a lot of, uh, a lot of attention. It's incredibly corrosive to a democracy where now people are saying, you're not just a Democrat or you're not just a Republican, you are the enemy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think social media is really the the kind of the tent pole issue that that is causing a lot of this division. And so when we see the results of an election be called into question, right, it's also now we can't necessarily we don't necessarily know who to trust. Like a lot of people are saying, well, the media is in on it. Right. The me- and, and so then what we see is that 
okay, like now who do we trust? Right. Like, and, and what we turn to is these confirming sources that aren't necessarily giving us straightforward factual information. So. So this polarization can become dangerous to our democracy. Um, how, how should students, um, like protect themselves navigating that world and making sure that they're not getting too wrapped up in that because it can so yeah it's it's interesting and and it's it's one of those things where i i i didn't grow up with an iphone in my hand Mm -hmm. right the iphone i was a fully fledged person by the time the iphone came into being so it's still like yes i check twitter all the time i'm not gonna lie like i i am as hooked as anybody else in this world um but the the kind of the attachment to technology is not necessarily as prevalent in my life as someone your age who quite literally like the iphones were in existence when you were when you were young so Mm -hmm. have this really kind of close attachment to that piece of technology. Um, so this is a lot easier said than done, but the first piece of advice I'd say is just put the phone down. <laughs> seriously. I like, seriously put the phone down it, because there's a lot of times where we get really just like, it feels productive to be mm-hmm. checking the news. It feels like you're doing something to be reading this article on Facebook that has, that truly could not matter less. Right. And so allowing yourself the time to do other things to still be informed, but to not be engulfed every single day in the outrage, in the kind of the, the, the cycle of, of kind of spin um, that happens on social media every day is, is incredibly harmful, not just to your, your, you being informed because a lot of times what we've seen is that if you're subscribing to certain sites you're actually less informed than if you weren't subscribing to those certain sites or, or, or news media. Um, and so you can be informed without being obsessed, uh, without being engulfed in, in, in that kind of narrative. Um, so put the phone down. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that I think is important is, is it's, it's a term called political tolerance. And, and essentially what it is is you build up the ability to understand other viewpoints Um, and this isn't necessarily, it's not the cure all, right? It's not just this, this panacea, all everything's better because we're building a political tolerance, but what it does allow for you to do is allows you to sit down and have a conversation with someone. So we actually did this in our racial equity training last week, or yeah, last week, um, the, the sixth, uh, session for those of you who may be coming back to this interview weeks later. Um, and what we looked at was kind of being empathetic and and being curious and and listening to one another. Um, because I could go on a diatribe for a long time about my political ideologies. And if you are someone who doesn't listen, right. You don't have those empathetic listening skills. What you're doing is you're just sitting there like with gritted teeth and clenched fists, just waiting Mm -hmm. to say what you want to say. Right. You're just you have this comeback and you want you're like, oh, I saw this thing on Facebook mm-hmm. that proves you wrong. and I want to say it right. That and what happens is you're so focused on saying that that you don't listen to what this person is saying, even if it's if, even if it's just 
insane. It makes you want to, you're just like, you're watching, you're listening to this through, you know, your fingers. It's like a horror movie. Like if you're sitting there and listening to what they're saying, one, you have a better response to what they're saying because you get it. But also the fact that you can kind of see where that thought process is going, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you don't listen, the only thing you're going to think of is this person's crazy, right? I hate this person. This person will, I like, I, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to prove them wrong. Right. And that attitude will never convince anybody of anything. Right. But if you listen, if you nod your head, you ask questions, you're like, I wait, can you explain that a little bit more? I don't understand that. Right. Truly empathetically listening and then coming back and saying, I understand what you're saying. I see it differently than you. I see it as this, right. I see this as being more important to me. Right. And that, I think the solution to this problem is actually this and that I know that this concerns you, but but I actually think that, that your concerns are maybe a little bit mis, misplaced, right? Saying something like that, I'm not forfeiting my own values. I'm not forfeiting my ideology and I'm not in any way giving ground to this person who may have, may have beliefs that are hateful, who may have ideologies that make you just makes your bones shake. Um, but what you're doing for that person, you're saying, I hear you, you are a human being with a, with your own, you like your own individual rights and your own individual freedoms. I, I can't convince you of anything, nor can I force you to believe anything, but I'm listening. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you walk away, you might not convince them, but what you do is you allow for them to say, Oh, that was nice. That was nice. And maybe next time you have a conversation, it gets a little bit better. And maybe the next time they have a conversation and they listen a little bit more. It's a slow process, right? Yeah. It happens over time, but it, that's that's really the only other thing we can do because right now, whatever we're doing is not working. Um, so my last thing was this kind of pers- purposeful empathy that you were talking yes. about. Do you think that that can help us or along with that, should we enter conversations about politics, changing our viewpoint about political parties? Should we start to see them less as our identity? Because you hit on that earlier and I was like, I, that seemed like when I heard you say it, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Exactly uh, what's happening. How can we work to fix that? I think uh, there's a wonderful quote and uh, hold on a second. You may need to pause this podcast for a second because I'm, I'm going to, pull, I'm actually going to pull it. One of the founders of the constitution, the second president of the United States said, there is nothing which I dread so much as a division of the Republic into two great parties. This in my humble apprehension is to be dreaded as the greatest political evil under our constitution. Yikes. In 1780, before the constitution had ever been ratified, this is the fear of the founders was that we would become a party of two people, whether there be Federalists and Anti-Federalists, you know, Democratic Republicans or Whigs or what we have now are the Democrats versus the Republicans. And the reason why John Adams said this, the reason why George Washington stood up on the balcony in his farewell address and warned against political parties was because they knew that there was no productive conversation that could be had when you see one team as the enemy. Or the opposition, right? The goal of the when they wrote the Constitution, the idea was that every state would have representatives, and that you would go to Congress 
as a member of the California delegation or a member of the Nevada delegation and that you would go in the interest of your state, of your people, right? And that you you and the other members of your delegation might disagree on how best to help California with the federal – with the kind of the power of the federal government, but that your interests are first in the state of California. Where that is no longer the case, I have seen in my – you know, maybe not as long as other people's but somewhat long life – Members of political parties admit that there are votes that they took not because they're of their beliefs, not because of of they thought it was best for the country, but because of the political pressure that forced them to do so. And that is inherently the wrong answer. Um, there's a there is a, a a wonderful interview that John Oliver did before he was the John Oliver that you know. He he was a correspondent on the Daily Show with John Stewart. Um, and he did he did a, a a wonderful interview, and he was talking to a, a lobbyist, and a, a lobbyist who was a former congressman. And he asked the congressman quite innocuously. He it wasn't meant to be a gotcha question. He just asked, "What is the most important? What is the biggest priority of a of an elected member of Congress?" And without a without missing a beat. Without it, it, like it was, it was second nature for this man to answer this question. He said, "Getting reelected." E. And he sits there. He pauses for a moment, and he goes, "What I should have said was serving my constituents, and then getting reelected." <laughs> but that kind of points to the larger problem, right? Where these political parties are more in, are more invested in maintaining power and maintaining the base. The, if you can't, if this is a podcast, you can't see the air quotations that are going on, but the base, right? You're more interested in that than you are in actually serving your constituents. And so, yes, political parties are are, are, are really corrosive to the system. I don't think they're necessarily that political parties in and of themselves are this evil thing, but they can cause – some of the worst instincts of political minds to 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 give that those 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 instincts a voice and and a lot of power um, and so I think that it has I have no problem with people saying I am I'm a registered independent you know like I don't want to have anything to do with it like I am not a member of either party type of thing I have no problem with people who are like that because what that tells me is that they see the problems in this system and actually that's a trend that's happening a lot more frequently um, with with newly registered voters, especially young people, Are where they have absolutely no interest in, in registering with either party. Um, even if their ideology, even if they were the most liberal person on the planet or the most conservative person on the planet, right, they wouldn't register with a party because they don't see themselves within those parties. And I think that actually allows for us to kind of see ourselves without this idea identity politics more in terms of seeing ourselves as the political party is like central to who we are. Um, and so, yeah, I would, you know, I would, I, I would say that that's, that's probably the best route in my, in my opinion. And again, I'm a, I'm a, I'm just a random social studies teacher in the Bay area. So that I'm sure there'll be people who disagree with me on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, political parties have always been feared as kind of, throwing sand in the gears of democracy. Um, we see a lot of different countries around the world, like Britain has like four. Um, we have other places who have three parties. We have other places who have like seven parties. Um, and so 
what that does though, is it gives people more opportunities and more, um, options in terms of pointing to what their beliefs are. Um, so it, there are other options. The two party system is not one. It's there's nothing in, in law that says anything about the two party system. Um, but I think it's also not destiny, right? And that mm-hmm. it's, you know, the the most apathetic group of voters for the last half century, century, entirety of this, in, entirety of the history of this country are young people, 18 to 30 year old voters. They just don't show up. And yep. yet they are the people who are the most impacted by the policies of the government because they have to live with the lasting consequences of those actions. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the most important important policy uh, positions for young people today is climate change. Right. Which is a culmination of the policies of of the last 50 years. And so if you believe strongly in that issue. Right. You should vote. If you have student loans, you should vote. If you have if you want to own a house at any point in your life, you should vote. If you want to get a job, you should vote. Like because all of those things are related and it's not you can't just go through life allowing other people to make your decisions and then be unhappy with the decisions. they make. Um, it just, it, it, it doesn't work like that. So I, I guess that's my cheesy, like closing line for, for, for my pitch for why students should vote. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's true. I, I, I wish there was a, a less cheesy cliche way of saying it, but that there's a reason cliches exist. Yeah. Sometimes cliches are true. They, they're cliches for a reason. They're comforting. Exactly. Um, okay. I know this is running a little long. No, you're good. I got nothing better. To, it's a, it's, we're, we, it's veterans that we got nothing better to do other than for me to write your, write your test for Friday. So you can stall as much as you want. It's still going to be written. <laughs> so do you think that the U S could make its way back to a democracy that doesn't function based on a two party system? Optimistically, I can see it happening. Realistically, no, I mm. don't. I and that's just that is that is the cynical version of me living in the political system that we've had. I, yeah. I don't know if I see it changing, um, but what I do see and and what I have seen a lot of, and this is again not necessarily party specific, is that I have noticed over the last ten years this massive upswell in the impact grassroots movements have had Mm -hmm. and the way that, and and it kind of gets into a different topic, but the way that we finance elections, because what happened previously, and one of the reasons why people felt so alienated by the democratic process, the American democratic process, because this is uniquely American, is that you would see that politicians were more interested in, I think it's something like 92% of all Americans in the Gallup poll that was taken in 2017, 92% of Americans believe, saw that the politicians were more interested in their donors than their voters, right? That they was more interested in who was giving them money than who was actually voting for them. And what I've seen kind of happen and evolve is that a lot of politicians are kind of foregoing the traditional, I'm going to go to these big fundraising dinners. I'm going to talk to the millionaires of the world. That still absolutely happens. That's not that's not going away anytime oh, yeah. soon. But but what we see is that these really kind of grassroots movements can can change a lot and, and cause mass like involvement and get especially young people um, involved. And so 
you know, I have a lot of concerns about that, that, that too. We see a lot of really ugly movements come out of that. Um, but what it does tell me is that people are engaged. It does tell me that people are at least focusing a little bit on what's going on. And so I think with a little bit of care, with a little bit of focus and a little bit of guidance, right. Um, we can take that energy, right. Take the, the, the enthusiasm that came in 2020, where we see, I mean, 75 million people voting for one candidate and 70 million people voting for the other candidate is insane. I can't like in, in the best way. When I saw a hundred million people voted before election day, I can't describe how happy that made me, regardless of who those people voted for. I didn't necessarily care because what we are getting is an accurate reflection or more accurate reflection of what the American people actually wanted, right? Mm -hmm. Because in years previous, we've had 40 million people, 45 million people, 50. And that's not necessarily that you're now getting representatives who people didn't vote for. You're getting representatives for people who, they saw themselves not reflected in either candidate, so they just rather sit on the sidelines. And so seeing these grassroots movements, seeing these people, young people kind of getting involved, especially recently, has been – I think that's the best way to kind of take the two-party system, right? That – I mean it, it's kind of here to stay. I mean the Democrats and Republicans, and they've been here for a long time. Yeah. But b- bending them, right? And, and shaping them to look more and can be concerned more with voters rather than with kind of the money power brokers of, of, of the, of the, of the country. So. As we wrapped up our discussion, we discussed the social ramifications of polarization. Because it was, it's so central to who they are that they couldn't see themselves living or, or sharing a life with anybody who, um, you know, like thinks different politically. Um, you know, it, it, 92% of people in, in the country saw them, saw the conflict between, um, between Democrats and Republicans as strong or very strong with a 25 per, a 25% increase to people who thought it was very strong, which is incredibly <laughs> concerning. So, um, you know the, that 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 deep divide is, is it, it permeates everything. We all have an uncle who we don't want to talk to at Thanksgiving, or we all have, or maybe we are that pe- those people. Like who knows? But we all it, this affects us. Like and it it doesn't go away on its own. And we can't yeah. just be like, oh, like we'll just talk about sports. Talk about sports. Like it'll be fine. Like it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that way. So yeah, no, it's, it's hard as we try. Oh, trust me. I try. I try my best. It doesn't work, though. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm always, always happy to. This is one of my favorite topics. I w- again, I was, a, I was a government teacher, so this is kind of my field of expertise. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Absolutely. Uh, do you, is this the first podcast of this podcast series? Reflecting on my interview with Mr. Avery, I had several questions. When I register to vote, is it more responsible to put myself down as independent? 
How does the modern political landscape, where the identities of marginalized groups are often put on the chopping block, contribute to the polarization and the feeling that Avery described, where political parties have become central to many Americans' identities? And how do we approach hate speech while attempting to heal our polarization? I am not prepared to answer these questions now, nor do I possess the insight to do so. But I do know that the only way to slow the stratification of our political spectrum is to talk to each other and really listen, especially to people that don't necessarily agree with you. That's all for this episode of the Mirador Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Mirador Podcast is written and produced by me, Anaya Keenan. Thanks to the Mirador Editorial Board and the Mirador Editors-in-Chief. Special thanks to Mr. Avery for talking to me for this episode. All music in this episode is produced by Blue Dot Sessions.